you brought a copy of God's Word with you, I would like you to find 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, although by virtue of the nature of this series of messages which we begin today, these are not going to be your normal expositional cut through a text series of messages, but it's going to be more on theology. And hence the title of the series is A Quest for an Unshakable Faith. That sounds better than Christian, you know, Christianity 101 or Christian theology or whatever. So, but this is the goal of having spiritual re-rod within you, some really good truth within you to strengthen you so that you can handle all the, the vicissitudes of life that come at you and will come at you. And some of you are dealing with them even as I speak. Some of you are coming out of them, even as I speak. Some of you are going into them, even as I speak. And this is our quest for an unshakable faith. And I would submit to you that the quest for an unshakable faith must start with an objective truth of God. And we'll get to that here in just a moment. But just the other day I was, and really just the other day I was talking with an acquaintance of mine Really kind of a, a friend, we're not super close, but I saw him, hadn't seen him for a while. And uh, here he had been uh, in a church for some 30 years, and uh, he had left and gone to another church. And so I said, well, what prompted you to go to the other church? He said, well, he said, things were sort of getting hitting, hitting the doldrums in the church I was at. And so we just visited such and such a church, and he says, you know, it just felt right, you know? And I, so I just pursued it. I said, I, I think I know what you're talking about, but tell me, have you checked out the, the doctrine, the theology of that church? And he, he looked at me and he goes, nah, as if to say, that doesn't really matter to me. I'm not really worried about it. Do you remember the story of the six blind men and the elephant? Remember that story? That's the six blind men. They're, you know, they're told to go check out an elephant and describe what, they're, what, they, what, they can, what their senses tell them. You know. And they're operating on the feeling sense, so one grabs a hold of the trunk and thinks he's got a hold of a, you know, some kind of a giant snake. The other is on the other end holding the tail thinking he's grabbing a rope. One guy's in the middle, on the, you know, middle of the elephant. He thinks he's up against a huge wall. And some guy's checking out the tusk and figure he must, this, this thing must be a, you know, an arrow or a spear or something. You get it. They're blind. They don't see the elephant. So all they can do is describe what little their experience allows them to tell them. And one of my great concerns is, as a shepherd, is that there are those who, and even some who come into the church, those who claim to know Christ, were, were like the six blind men, and God is the elephant. And we got a hold of that trunk, you know, someone's got a hold of that leg, and we think it's a big whatever. We've got all kinds of conceptions of God, and, and most of us have some true conception of God, but not a whole conception of Him. And so we loved, we have this infatuation with the love of God. We love to talk about his love, especially if we are creatures who have not received a lot of mercy in our life. We love that element of God, do we not? And then others, you know, they make a, you make a beeline for the mercy of God. And you love it. You love the fact that he's a merciful God because you so much need it. And don't we all? 
And some of us go off on the grace of God, his forgiveness. And, and then others are, you're in that camp where you just all, you can't get yourself off that gigantuan picture of God. He's so awesome. He's infinite. He's eternal. He's unchangeable. And you see God as just great and holy, holy, holy. And he is that. And you see him as a jealous God. You see him as a God of wrath. And somehow you can't get to the other side and see the balancing attribute that he has. And so we end up with like one of the six blind men trying to look at God and we're only seeing one or two parts of him, so to speak. Some of us have just bad theology in our conceptions of God. We have that, you know, God helps those who help themselves. Or, like Paul mentioned a little bit earlier, you know, God will never give you more than you can take. That is ridiculous. He does give grace. He does give power, right? And some of us just have that warm, cuddly, you know, approach to God. He just is, he's just like a teddy bear to me, you know. I just kind of like to snuggle up next to him and all. And then when things don't go well, I don't like that teddy bear. He becomes a grizzly bear to me. The test of our understanding and knowledge of God comes when the bottom drops out in your life. And I've got news for you. It's going to happen. Some of you have already experienced it, or you are experiencing it, as I mentioned a little bit earlier. But that's the ultimate. The ultimate test is when your life starts to shake. And God has even told us in a passage of Scripture that one day he's going to just shake everything. So that things that cannot be shaken will remain. This is what the writer of Hebrews meant when he said, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, watch this, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. That's Hebrews 12, verses 26 through 28. So here is God who purposely shakes things up individually in our lives. Eventually, he's going to shake everything up. The earth and heaven and everything is going to go into convulsions. Why? So that things that cannot be shaken, the eternal things, will remain. And what is the goal of all of this, anyway? What is the goal of God shaking our lives up? Well, so that we might have an unshakable faith. And that we might actually worship God with reverence and awe and acceptable to God. That's one of my greatest concerns is that our worship is not always acceptable to God. And that always happens with the way we think about God himself. If you think about it and listen to yourself, I even challenge you to this end. Think about the way you talk in any given circumstance, and that'll tell you a lot about your own theology. Every one of us have a theology. It's just that some of us just have really, really really bad theology. Some of us have really, really good theology. But listen to yourself in normal conversation, and that'll help you understand what you really believe about God. And his ways. I have personally interacted with people and some people in this very church, you know, 1,100 people, 
And it's like, I'll hear things come out of someone's mouth, and I'll go, I just can't believe that's coming out of your mouth. Betraying uh, a sort of a blind man around an elephant view of God. Unbalanced and, and maybe even completely absurd. So here's a question for you. If I asked you the, this question, what's the most important thing about you? How would you answer that? What's the most important thing about you? How might you answer that? Uh, the great Christian theologian slash pastor A.W. Tozer actually answered that question, but before I give you the, his answer, uh, a number of years ago, a great Christian author was sitting with two very eminent the- theologians, and one of the theologians asked the Christian author, next to the Bible, what's the most influential book you've ever read? Well, the, this author said, that's an easy one. The most influential book I've ever read is The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. And uh, to which the Christian theologian said, that's amazing because that's the most influential book in my life. And the other theologian, the third one said, I cannot believe it. I'm not kidding you. It's the most influential book in my life. And I would add my own name to that list. We have a pile of them and we're selling them. They're not large books. They're out in the information center. They almost all got bought up in the first service, but there's still plenty. You can still buy some. And and if we run out, we'll, we'll get them to you next week. That said, in the introductory comments of that great book, The Knowledge of the Holy, Tozer writes this. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And that's a true statement. Because that will define the way you look at life, the way you view certain situations, the way you handle struggles that come into your life, the way you're handling them right now. How are you handling them? How are you handling your struggles? It's the way you think about God that will determine how you handle every change, good and bad, joyful and otherwise, in your life. We're dealing with theology in this summer series. And what is theology? I mean, the word simply means the study of God. Thomas Aquinas summed up theology by saying, theology is taught by God, teaches of God, and leads to God. That's a pretty good definition of theology. I'm with a woman on a plane here uh, not long ago. She's sitting right next to me reading a book, a secular book. So I engaged her in conversation and talked to her about her book. I said, how are you liking that book? Oh, I like it. It's a great book. And uh, it's, she tell, telling me, I said, oh, sounds suspenseful. Yeah, she says, I've already read the end. I said, why would you do that? that why would you read the end of a book? You're, you're not even a third of the way through this book, and you've already read the end? Why would you do that? And she said, oh, I I said, doesn't that take the suspense out of the book? And she responded by saying to me, she says, well, I always read the book, the the end of the book first. She says, that's just it. I can read through the suspense accounts then without getting all worked up because I already know how this thing's going to end. That was very difficult to argue with that logic. 
Theology is the study of God. And I, I basically, and if you look up definitions for theology, you'll find 150 definitions. But they all kind of come back to the same idea. Basically, it's just what we believe about God and his ways in this world. And if we can get our theology straight, then we can face life. All of its joys, all of its sorrows, the steadies and the changes, all the vicissitudes of life, everything. With the confidence, like the one who's already read the end of the book. And by the way, you can do that, right? And see what happens. It's a little bit like Lewis, C.S. Lewis, who used to say that he believed in God the way he believed in the sun. Not because he can see the sun, but that by it, that is by the sun, he sees everything else more clearly. That's a really good word picture of God. If we see God more clearly, and granted, we all see in a mirror what? Dimly. There is an opaqueness to the Christian life, is there not? That's by design as well. If you're looking for a theology that's nice and neat and cut and dry and everything's going to be make sense, my whole life's going to make sense, everything's going to be fantastic, there's the door. That's not with this book. That, what does it mean when it says we walk by faith, not by sight? What does that mean? But that there's going to be times in my life by design that God allows things into my life that I'm not going to be able to figure out. That's where I have to lean on him. This is where the unshakable faith takes place in my life and in yours. So, but I would submit to you that the better we see God, the better we know him and understand him, then the better we'll see life and everything in it in a clear way. And we might shake on the rock, as the old expression says, but the rock won't shake under us. Amen? Okay, there are several factors, and I'm only going to get to a couple of them this morning. I could go through all of them and just extend this service because I don't have to go to a third one, but I cut this thing off in the first service, so I'm going to do the same thing here, Okay. So we're just going to, this is just the introductory here today. So uh, there are several factors we need to consider as we embark on this journey and studying the major aspects of Christian theology. And we will be looking at major aspects of God, of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, you and me, and how we work in this world, how we stand before God, the cross, and sanctification and redemption. We've actually been studying that in Romans Spiritual things and the spiritual world, spiritual warfare, the future, all of that. But here are some factors that are really vital to our journey, and just look at a couple of them. The first one is the truth factor, okay, the truth factor. The most important thing you're going to have as you enter this journey is a rock-solid belief that this is actually the objective word of God. This is God's word. A lot of stuff changes. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will what? They'll not pass away, right? That's what Jesus said, and we believe it. I I remember working at UPS many years ago, and this guy by the name of Jimmy, he'd come in. I remember him coming today. He's just flying in. He's all excited. He said, what's up, Jimmy? Hey, it's Jesus. He said, you're excited about Jesus? Yeah. He'd just been at some revival service. You know, he's all pumped up, you know. Seriously, seriously, the very next day, here comes Jimmy. 
Jimmy, what's wrong? Oh, man, pray for me. Things are not going well today. Oh, that's too bad. What about Jesus? Oh, yeah, yeah, he's good too. This was, this was Jimmy's entire life. His whole life was predicated on the latest heebie-jeebie, the latest excitement, the latest thing that pumped up his blood pressure, you know. The latest goosebump he got at the last revival service. This was his whole life. I'm not saying Jimmy wasn't a Christian. I'm saying he was a Christian with a really, really bad theology. Based entirely on how he felt. Entirely upon his experience. You want experience? Peter says, I'll give you experience. Look at chapter 1, verse 16. He begins to describe to his readers his experience with James and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember that? That's Matthew 17. Jesus sort of tears back his, you know, his, uh, his humanity, so to speak, and shows his second coming resplendence. You know, he's like whiter than the whitest bleached anything. And they're just, you remember him, Peter, he gets goofy and says something about right, making a couple of huts for him. It's, you know, Jesus kind of writes him off. But So he tells his readers several years later about this amazing experience where he sees Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. He hears the voice of God coming out of the clouds. I mean, look at it. He says in verse 16, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him, I'm sorry, was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter says, you want experience? (laughs) Top that one. I have a friend that loves to say, Don't believe anything you hear and only half of what you see. He's not really a cynic, but he is a realist. He understands how our senses can sort of throw us off. Have you ever had your senses throw you off? Sure you have. I have too. And and God tells us that repeatedly in in the Proverbs, Proverbs 20, it says, he who trusts in his own heart is a fool. You ever read that? And the more the more uh, famous verse of Scripture, the more well-known one, at least, is Jeremiah, who says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, try the heart. I, I, try, I know the heart. I try the reins, says the Lord. Our hearts are de- deceitful, and deceit, deceit are being deceived. By definition, says, I don't get the fact that I'm being taken off course. That's why... James says, be doers of the word, not hearers only, because when you do that, you deceive your own self. You don't even, you don't realize that you're deceived yourself. So there is a a sense in which we can, we are so given toward deception, and our senses will do that. So God has given us his word, this objective truth, based not on feeling, based not on visions, based not on dreams, based not on impressions, based not even on providential circumstances as much as we love those things, do we not? This is the reason why Isaiah said to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Have you ever read that? There's no light in them. 
And I've talked to many people who, 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 have you heard, have you got a word from God? What is that all about? There's the word from God right there. This is the word from God. If you read Jeremiah, Jeremiah is all over these false prophets and false pastors. And he has a whole chapter in chapter 23 about the false shepherds and the false prophets. And they're coming with their dreams. They're coming with their impressions. They're coming with their, their, with their visions. And they seem legit. People are following them. And this is the context in which Jeremiah says, let the prophet who has a dream tell his dream. But let him who has my word speak it faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat? Is not my word like a fire, like a hammer that shatters the rock, saith the Lord? The truth factor in studying theology says, I need to have objective truth. Peter has sort of set up his leader, or his readers rather. He's saying, hey, you want experience? Holy smokes, I'll give you experience. I was up on that mountain. It was awesome. Saw Jesus in his second coming glory. <laughs> Ever seen that? You, you know, little minions. Are, well, no, I guess we saw him, you know, look like a normal guy to us. <laughs> oh, no, that's not how I saw him. And that would almost kind of make you feel jealous. And how, 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 what if you were the next generation to come and think, oh man, we missed Jesus, plus we missed what Peter got to see. But Peter sort of sets us up. And if you look in verse 19, he says, and we have something more sure. The prophetic word to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for prophecy was never produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And what he is saying here is, is we have a word more fully confirmed. It's a more sure word. More sure than what? Yeah, even my crazy experience I had in, on the Mount Transfiguration, as cool as that was. By the way, that's you and me. We have this. We can approach this word. I get it. It's not like seeing Jesus all in his second coming glory. That's coming. But isn't it enough to know that you have this glory that never changes, that's not predicated on experience? or the feeling you may have had, or whether God specifically spoke to you on a given day, he can speak to you every single day in this word. If you'd believe it. That's why we like to say, I like to say that, now listen carefully what I'm going to tell you, because the truth factor is the most important thing. So this is sort of the foundation of all this, but exposition must drive our theology, and never the other way around. I've met too many people in every conceivable camp theologically who let their theology drive their exposition. Your theology, again, is what you already believe. My theology is what I believe. I have a theology. You have a theology. All of us have a theology. Just say it together. I have a theology. Say that. I have a theology. Now you know you have a theology. I don't know if it's any good or not, but you have one. Whatever that theology is, if that theology drives your exposition, and by that I mean your 
the way you interpret the Bible, the way you study the Bible and read the Bible and interpret it. If your theology drives your exposition, you're going to come up with all kinds of crazy beliefs. Because what's going to happen is you're going to run in, you're going to run amok, you're going to run into walls, and suddenly you're going to say, well, yeah, but it can't mean that because I already believe this. That's when your theology drives your exposition. It should be the other way around. Exposition, your study of the word, should drive your theology. The Bible should drive what we believe. And if I keep, if I, if I am submissive, if I remain submissive to this book, that means when I run into the wall, I say, okay, God, I believe you instead of what I was taught all my life, right? I mean, I'm, I'm I, John Hanna, the, um, one of the seminary professors at Dallas Seminary used to, with a little tongue in cheek, used to open up his, one of his classes and say, I'm going to be teaching you deep, deep theological truths and history, and you're going to just, the riches, from the riches of God's word, but most of you are just going to go on believing what mommy and daddy taught you anyway. Sort of startling as the seminarians, so to speak. The truth factor is what we, we must believe that our exposition, our understanding of the Bible must drive our theology. Otherwise, we're going to end up in a ditch. And some of you may be there. I can remember many years ago, just shortly after my wife passed away, we got the tombstone and I had it put in place. And, and I went out to the cemetery to clean it up because it was some you know, Memorial Day or something. And I brought my two youngest with me. Left the car running. And, uh, I, and it was just about 20 yards from where the driveway in the cemetery was. So I went over there and kind of cleaned everything up. I was getting run back to the car. And an older couple came out. They wanted to see the tombstone. So I just naturally stopped and chatted with them for about three or four minutes. And, uh, and he says to me, the older guy says, hey, is, is that your car? I looked over. There's my car going right down the road. Yeah, I took off. I run, I get up to the car, and there is my not yet two-year-old standing in the front seat. He's managed to pull the thing down. He's looking at me, he's just looking at me smiling as he goes right toward a ravine. I can't get in the driver's side door. It's, it's, it's locked. So I run around the front of the car. Yes, I run around the front of the car. I can't imagine what it would have been like my two-year-old running me over, but... Uh, I got over, that door is open, I opened the door, literally shoved him, he went flying across into the passenger seat, lands down, screaming his, his head off, and I slammed on the brakes just before it went into a ravine. Now, I, I, I hesitate to tell you that because I don't want you to go, wait, man, that was quite a story about his son, wasn't it? No, I'm trying to make a point here. I have no idea what point I was going to make because I'm lost in my notes right now, but I'll get back to it. Actually, if you are allowing what you already believe to drive your understanding of the Bible, you're in trouble. You're going for a ditch. Let the Bible speak for itself. Let the Word of God speak for itself. Otherwise, you're going into a ditch. And here's the deal. Some of you are already there. You already you got bad thinking. You have bad theology. So this series is intended to help you. Yes, I might kind of metaphorically have to jump in and shove you to the other side, okay? But you can take it. Let the Word of God speak for itself. And clean up your, you know, the gremlins that have gotten in there due to just bad teaching or, you know, what you've accepted down through the years and whatnot. So... So the truth factor, and we'll come back to that because that'll be one of the biggest 
uh, sermons of all is on, on the scripture and why we love the Bible. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day long. Do you love the Bible? You should. Here's the second thing, and this is where we're going we're gonna to wrap it up a little bit this morning, and that is the, the Holy Spirit factor. The Spirit of God, we've already studied an entire series on the Holy Spirit in the book of Romans in chapter 8. Remember, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not of God. You don't, you're not of God. You're not a child of God if you don't have the Spirit of God living in you. The Spirit of God is so inextricably tied into our understanding of theology that the Apostle Paul actually said, the person without the Spirit, in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them as foolishness. That's the Greek word. We get our word moron from this word. If you are without the Spirit of God within you, you are a spiritual moron. In fact, he says, and he cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. So to whatever degree one may intellectually comprehend theology, if you don't have the mind of Christ, the Spirit of God is not living within you, you will not get it. And I can tell you, I've had, I think, hundreds of conversations with highly intellectual individuals who flat out don't get it. Spiritual things to a person without the Holy Spirit, as I've said before, you're like a blind man in a dark room looking for a black cat that isn't there. That's the way it is. That's the way theology is. That's the way truth is. That's why we need the Spirit of God. And if you have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ and been born of the Spirit, thus having the Holy Spirit within you, you're not of God. You need to repent, place your faith in the crucified and risen one. You'll get the Holy Spirit. Scripture will begin to be comprehensible to you. So... Augustine put it this way, I don't understand so that I might believe. I believe so that I might understand. And he got it right. Belief brings with it the power of God and the Spirit of God within you so that you can comprehend spiritual truth. And Jesus himself specifically tied the Spirit's work of illumination into our understanding of spiritual things, hence theology, our understanding of God and his ways in this world. When he told his disciples just before he died, he said, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. That's a powerful statement. They they couldn't bear them. They couldn't comprehend them. They couldn't understand them. They were too heavy. It is the way it is for some of you right now. Spiritual things are so heavy for you. Or they're so dull to you. And you've been hearing the Bible, you've been hearing the gospel, you've been hearing truth, and it really doesn't matter because you're not converted. You've never truly repented. You've never been born again. You've never been born from above. You may have gone to school, you may have gone to a Christian school, you may have been to a Bible college, but you're not saved. You've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ. If you really had, your life would be changed. The Spirit of God would come to live within you. You would have a level of comprehension. Granted, some will comprehend things quicker than others, but it would be there. 
Jesus said to his disciples, I've got so many things to lay on you, but you can't bear them now. And the only reason he, they couldn't bear them is because of what the rest of the scripture says. If he puts it back up, it says, you can't bear them now. Why? Well, because you don't have the Spirit of God. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. If he would do it for his disciples, how much more us? This is what the Spirit of God does. He opens us up. That's why 1 John 2.20 and 1 John 2.27 talks about this unction that we have. And you don't even need a teacher, he says. That's how good the Holy Spirit is. He's, he's, He's the best teacher you could ever have. He's the author of the Word of God. What better person to help you understand the Bible than the one who authored it, right? He comes to live within you. You must have this so that you can have the, you know, even before, before the Spirit came to live within us permanently, David prayed for those powers of illumination in Psalm 119. Open my eyes that I may Behold, wondrous things from your law. Remember that? He's saying, what was he doing except to acknowledge that he was not able to comprehend God's truth on his own? Now, there are many other introductory things I want to share with you, and I had every intention to do so today, but I'm going to cut it off so that we can go to the Lord's table. I'm going to make a beeline to the Jesus factor. It's always good to get to Jesus. Amen? Really, if you study theology and you, and you don't see Jesus, you're doing a bad job of studying theology. When Jesus spoke to his critics in John chapter 5, he said, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me. Did you catch the rebuke? He was talking to the intelligentsia of that day. He was talking to scribes, talking to Pharisees, talking to these individuals who made their lives to understand the Bible. These were scholars. This was, a, this was a, an incredible rebuke. And remember he said another time, you are an error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. That was like a slap in the face. They made their lives knowing the scripture. He said in John 5, 39, he said, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life and they are they which testify of me. What he was saying is they were in a scholarly, academic way unearthing all kinds of things, but they weren't seeing Jesus. And he's saying, if you don't see me, you don't see it right. Because all prophecy... And when I say prophecy, I'm using the word generally, not just for future time, but all, all of the prophetic word, all of the word of God leads to Jesus, be it the bookend on one end or the bookend on the other. When he said, you search the scriptures, he was talking about the Old Testament scriptures. And he said that to the disciples on the road of Emmaus. Remember that? He said, well, he opened up the scripture and he taught them the things concerning himself. That's why their hearts were burning because he was taking dead truth and making it come alive. Jesus is the one who makes it all come alive. So you go to the other end of the book and you go to Revelation 19 and you read this statement. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Have you ever read that? Everything about this book will take you to Jesus if you read it right. That's why people say, you know, I really like coming to Sailorville because you always, get, you, always, you always talk about the gospel. Yeah, because the Bible always points to Jesus. It's not hard to do that. 
I, I absolutely marvel at people who can preach a great message and not make it to Jesus. They have absolutely destroyed their message if they don't make it to Jesus. And that's why we're celebrating the Lord's table this morning, because it takes us to Jesus. And the symbolism is here. The Jesus factor is the factor that says, if you don't know Jesus, you'll never understand truth. And if you don't see Jesus, those of you who have trusted Jesus as your Savior, if you don't see, if you don't make a beeline to Christian theology, then you're not reading your Bible rightly, be it the shadows of the Old Testament or the light of the new. So with that, we come to this. Powerful symbols of what Christ has done. This is, the, this is that humble moment where we, we come into the Lord's table and we take these two elements. They're not redundant. They don't mean the same thing. The bread represents Jesus' life. It represents his perfection. It represents his innocence. It represents he being the lamb without spot, without blemish, thus being qualified to die for us. If Jesus has a blemish, if he has a spot, he can, he can die, but he can't die for us. So when you hold this, first of all, the first thing you need to do is know this. You are not allowed to take these elements, symbols though they be, if you are not a Christian, if you've not become a follower of Jesus, if you've not trusted him as your Savior. So that's where it starts. Trust Jesus. Believe that he died. He lived a perfect life and died a sacrificial death. That's what these two things represent. So when you hold these elements, you put your filthy life up against the perfect life of Jesus, and you lose every time, right? It causes you to confess, repent, think about things that need to be dealt with in your life, and then you partake of the element. And then when you hold the juice, which represents the slaughter of the Son of God, the death, the hanging on the cross, the bleeding, the dying, a substitutionary death on your behalf, on my behalf, then that's when you think of what all, that's how these two perfectly come together for salvation, depicting it, that is. So that's why we celebrate this, and it's a great place to end up. So if you would pray with me, we'll prepare ourselves for this communion table. Father, thank you for the opportunity to just begin this introduction of Christian theology and our quest for an unshakable life. Lord, I, I know that uh, here in this room, with all these people, there are some who are just really, really struggling. They're shaking, so to speak. They're hurting. They're depressed. Some feel very helpless against a physical condition or a relational situation in their life. Some are just very, very sad. Though they've trusted Jesus, they're just struggling. They're shaken. But I pray, Lord, that you would give them comfort. Help them to realize that you are God and you will do whatever you please. And we believe that. And we also understand that that means that sorrow and discomfort and suffering and perhaps even to some degree persecution is going to take place in our lives. 
And I pray for those who are struggling right now to that end. May they find themselves on the firm footing of the rock of God and trusting the sure word of God. And I pray for those, Lord, who are joyful right now. They're happy in Jesus. (laughs) Life is good. Things are going well. The wife loves them. The husband loves them. Kids are doing great. No physical maladies. Work's going well. Lord, that's such a pipe dream. We realize that that kind of a life is not going to, not if it's a Christian life, is it going to stay like that forever. It's just the way it is. But we rejoice with them. Help them to rejoice in you. And we probably have many people in between. Either way, Lord, we need you. Oh, just like we sang. Oh, we need you. Every hour we need you. Right now we need you. Help us to examine ourselves. I pray that some would examine themselves to see if they're in the faith. And if not, if that's you, trust Jesus. Others, the rest of us, examining ourselves against the perfect life and sacrificial death of Jesus. And with great, great gratitude, rejoice in what you have done. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Deacons, come and we'll distribute the elements.
If you haven't done so already, you can separate those two cups, as we've already discussed it. A perfect life without a sacrificial death could never save us. A sacrificial death without a perfect life could never save us. The two bring salvation, thus beautifully depicted in the Lord's table. And the Apostle Paul wrote it like this. He said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and uh, when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. May we pray. Father, thanks again for this time we could be in your word and introduce this series on theology in our quest for an unshakable life. Lord, I ask that you would cause all of us to be lovers of your truth, your objective truth. Lord, we do long for those that do from heaven to come down from time to time, those wonderful experiences, the great, immeasurable joys, inexpressible and full of glory and providential things that occur, Lord, which we just love to talk and give testimony about. But those things will come and go, and we know that. Your word abides forever. May we love that, Lord. And thank you so much for the spirit of truth, the spirit of God who comes to live in those of us who place our faith in Jesus so that we can rightly understand, much less in addition, uh, divide the word of God, understand it, and uh, have good thoughts, Lord, because as has been said, what we think about, Lord, when we think about you is the most important thing about us. So give us right thoughts so that out of it can become come godly reactions to the circumstances of life. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.